Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 97, was recorded live January 5th, 2012. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. My name is Darren Jilson. Here's some of the articles we're going to have in the news this week. We have uh, some more on the mystery of the World War II plane. We have something wasn't right. We have golf ball diving, helium, a hot commodity, and also a fish that does things that you don't want it to do. And I'd like to welcome this first of the year, my co-host, Mac. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing really good, uh, especially since we don't have a lot of snow. That's even better. Yeah, I'm surprised. I I thought we were going to have our traditional early January blizzard and we'd get right into the middle of winter, but we we climbed up into the mid 40s, which has to be no ice diving, no ice diving in the near future anyway. No, no, it's uh, melting away, and I'm looking at the high temperatures all the way through next week, and it's all going to be above freezing. That's a few degrees uh-huh. above Celsius. So uh, we're we're not going to have be building any ice. Is have we ever had a year where we didn't get any ice diving in? Uh I don't think so. We've usually had something. If nothing else, if we have that heavy skim ice, that's still an ice dive. <laughs> so if the ice is forming, we'll call that an ice dive. Okay, so uh, we got an excellent chat room. You got to come if you haven't been coming to the chat room. You have to try it at least once. We've got at least a, a dozen people in there talking away. Some of our regulars, some new faces. Glad to see everybody in there. And by being in the chat room, you get to have some of the articles. Uh, as we do the show, to follow along. This first one is a mystery of the World War II plane that we teased about in the beginning. They had a little bit more information on it. This is this uh, follow-up is out of the Palm Beach Post News. Uh, they've got a little bit more information on it. The, uh, the aircraft, which is upside down and mostly intact, if you remember from last week, it is an, indeed a Curtis SB-2C Helldiver, as was originally uh, suspected. Uh, Randy Jordan, the diver who discovered the plane Tuesday while diving with a depth at 185 feet, four miles off of Jupiter. And I'm assuming they, it's a location and not the planet. Uh, he said, the, I would think so. Yeah, that'd be kind of a, that'd be a long, long one. Uh, according to the Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, D.C., there were three crashes off the coast of Florida in September 1944 in which the planes were either lost at sea or missing. The planes were engaged in training flights, and the accident weren't because of enemy action. Uh, in an email sent to Jordan on Thursday by Robert S. Nealon, head of the Underwater Archaeological Branch of the Naval History and Heritage Command, Jordan was instructed not to disturb the crash site or move marine growth or sediment on the wreck. Any disturbance to a second Navy ship or aircraft wreck requires a permit under the Sunken Military Craft Act of 2004, Nealon wrote. You know, isn't that kind of funny that they can't say congratulations for finding the wreck? It just don't touch it. Yep. I also sent you a link to the uh, Military Craft Act of 2004, uh-huh. just for reference. It's typical. Don't ask, don't tell. You didn't find it. You in can't tell case, anybody where it is. What you need to do is you actually need to post the GPS coordinates out before you do anything else, and that way they can't quiet you up. I, I shouldn't say that probably, but. Yeah, not on the air. Somebody's recording this. No, you are. <laughs> well, everybody who listens is in a chat room, so we're pretty safe. We know everybody who's in there. Um, uh, well, 
if that bomber is located this year, it probably won't be. <laughs> well, that that one wouldn't qualify under this act, would it? Oh, yes, it does. That was scrap. That was already been yeah, recovered. Well, <laughs> you mean and dumped again? And dumped again, yeah. I mean, that's like uh, like yeah. like second twice baked potatoes. You know, it's no longer potato. It's it's a fry. Yeah, it belongs to them, and they want it. Of course, not enough to get it out of the lake. They're polluting the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Hey, what, why they say ownership. Maybe we could sue them or something and have them move it. <laughs> Ah, so uh, we pasted that act into the chat room, and that was enacted in October 28, 2004. President George Bush signed the 2005 National Defense Authorization Act, Title 14 of the Act, Public Law Number 108-375, preserves the sovereign status of sunken U- U.S. military vessels and aircraft by codifying that their protection sovereign status permanent U.S. ownership regardless of the passage of time. Yeah, there's several items. If you look that up, you've got some that were... Um, filed against it in 2007. They're saying it's okay because it's consistent with international law. There was another district court ruling under that act in 2009. So, And the, actually, there's another one. Uh, court of Appeals has got a court, uh, case May 14 of 2010 against that act. So mm-hmm. looks like people are suing them. <laughs> I'll take them to the task. Well, what the real part of this is, oops, uh, our military lost something and we don't want somebody else to lay claim to it act like we had something where it shouldn't have officially been and somebody else found it. So we want to have some sort of claim back to grab it. Uh, you think Iran's going to give them back that, uh, little spy drone? <laughs> no, <laughs> we wouldn't give it back if it was the roles were reversed. So no, yes, no, uh, I'm sure we would. Oh yeah. Of course we would. <laughs> After completely dismantling it, taking it apart, shredding it, and turning it into paper mache. Then the next article that we have up is something wasn't right. Uh, if you remember, two years ago at this time we had uh, the tragic tsunami, and uh, this article was somebody who actually was in the water at the time. And I kind of wondered, you know, what it would be like to be in the water when the tsunami came over. Would that be something that would help you avoid? And this article talks about. Uh, Mr. Yap, 41, a scuba diving operator, he was 17 meters below the surface of the Thai island when the giant wave rolled over in December 2006. Uh, he said uh, he led a group of snorkelers and divers in expedition to the reef for about an hour. Uh, we knew something wasn't right. The undersea current was suddenly very strong. It sucked us toward the reef, then later pushed us back out to sea. For about five minutes, we were fighting to regain control. Just couldn't explain what was happening. Mr. Yap and five other divers were holding on to dear life to undersea corals. The ten snorkelers were scrambling for safety. They could see the huge wave coming and heard warning shouts from the boat's captain. It was frantic. The snorkelers, who happened to be mostly tourists, jumped on the boat. His deckhands untied the rope from the buoy. Uh, Meanwhile, Mr. Yap signaled the rest of the divers to ascend. When he surfaced, the wave had passed and the boat had been swept some distance away. The boat looked as though it was searching for us. The next few minutes, we shouted to get the boat's attention. Lucky for us, nobody was hurt. I wonder how far offshore they were. Well, yeah, it's it's hard to tell. Uh, that is just an, an amazing story. So I've always, I always kind of figured that, you know, if you were out in the water, would it be, I mean, would it be safer to be out in the water than it would have been to be on land? It sounded like it. They lived. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was just saying that if you were down there 50-some feet, which he was, then you had 30 feet of water going over you, that put you down to 80 feet real quick. Yeah. As long as you didn't inhale when they were coming over you. Yeah. Might have been interesting. 
Yeah. And they had something to hang on to. Yeah. Well, that'd be a shock because you just wouldn't know what the heck was going on. Well, it's like that underwater tornado a couple of weeks ago we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. It was another case of something that you wouldn't expect to actually see out. And they had the same issue. They had something to hang on to pretty good. It was lucky, though. I think all of them were. And then next up is this one's from the Sun Times. Owen sometimes. And this is some discussion on the, the uh, value of the portable defibrillators for divers. That's a good idea, too, because we have talked about that in the dive club. As some of the people in our club, I won't mention any names, are getting older. <laughs> we thought having a defibrillator with our O2 set might be something that we might want to do. Yeah, I, I was wondering myself. They said the survival rate for heart attack victim outside of a hospital is less than 5%. And this is Correct, from, even with good CPR. Yeah, uh, but with CPR combined with the AED, it increases survival rate up to 75%. A heck of a jump, isn't it? Uh, that is, that is. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've been trained on it. Uh, have you had any training on that, Mac? Yes, it's been a while. And then sort of, I was talking to a guy last week, matter of fact, about he had a used one uh, that he could sell the club at a nice discount. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's, there's really nothing wrong with the used one. The only thing you have to watch out for is that you have to have them serviced. That's actually something that's becoming a problem and actually a liability is uh, they don't last, they, they need to be tested. And they need yeah, to be tested. Yeah, yeah, and they need to be tested beyond just powering up and seeing if they work. They need to have somebody who's authorized to to evaluate and determine because there's been cases where people have, have hit the button, it goes to the test, it has enough to get to the beginning, but it can't shock. I'm, I'm sorry, Jim, you were saying yeah. something? No, normally it takes a, it's got to be tested once a year. And if the heart association or someone else changes their criterias for what a shockable rhythm is and some of the other things that are, are internal on it, but generally once a year is good. After more than 12 minutes of ventricular fibrillation, the survival rate in adults is less than 5%. Uh, yeah, V-fib is when the heart is basically quivering and not pumping. Uh, they're saying that uh, a brief defibrillation could potentially reduce the estimated 20 annual diving deaths due to cardiac arrest. Now, 20 sounds a little light to me. I think a lot of these deaths where people just say they, you know, that they just expired, I think may have started with cardiac arrest. But we won't go through all the details, but... Uh, uh, ADs are already on some diving boats and liveaboards where the uh, where divers are on for a week. Uh, Dan has run a subsidy program in the past to encourage a purpose of the devices. Uh, the devices are about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars each now. We recommend that older divers adjust their participation diving according to health status and physical fitness. Uh, it's staying from diving conditions likely to require unaccustomed physical activity. Yeah, I, I I think that might be a good idea to have something like that. I thought it was interesting. They're talking about the uh, mean average age of divers in 2006 was 43 years old. So I'm average. Well, uh, you'd be <laughs> under average in our group, right? <laughs> I, I think I'm un until uh, Dave uh, joined the club. I think I was, or, or Jim was actually. He's he's a few months younger than I am, Cleman. Uh, this next one, uh, this article was prompted by they had a fatality in Florida. Uh, that was scuba-related, uh, uh, a young man who was uh, scuba diving for golf balls. And uh, what this article goes into is uh, just somebody who's a golf ball diver saying how dangerous it is. Uh, golf ball divers, uh, this uh, these uh, Jarrett Carnell and Cody Allen 
were at Airhood Golf Course in Naples to get a job done. They said it's a really weird job. Uh, they swim through mucky water to find golf balls that don't quite made it, make it. Uh, they said the deep water is probably their biggest thing. They said he can get uh, up to 30 feet deep and pitch black. Now, Mac, I, that sounds more like our our normal dive. Yeah, but the kicker we don't have is we don't bump into alligator snakes and 100-pound fish going 100 miles an hour. Not normally. I mean, we have had a few fish that are big, but not no alligators so far. Uh, we have had some snakes. but yeah. Now, one thing I have heard that they did mention in the article was uh, uh, fertilizer that uh, they've had uh, some of the, the water isn't exactly the best and cleanest you want to be in with all the chemicals that they throw in some of the golf courses to be quite toxic. Uh, and then uh, what I thought, another thing I thought was interesting, they said in just a couple days, the 20 ponds in this one golf course, they collected 50,000 golf balls. At eight cents a pop. Yeah. $5,000? Yeah, yeah, e- easy. Well, and then you look at where they're, uh, they're uh, selling it to. You know, there's got to be, I mean, I, I, I that might just be the one company. It seems like, I mean, eight cents doesn't sound like a whole lot. Well, you start getting a couple of them sliced and cut, and you're talking driving range balls. Yeah. So, so the, um, we, well, that's, that's, but at least uh, you're guaranteed an official dive every time. Yeah, finding a golf ball. <laughs> Deceptively dangerous, so. Uh, I also wonder what kind of junk is in the bottom of a golf course pond. I imagine, I imagine you might find some golf clubs. Yeah, I was going to say there's probably a few clubs. imagine there's some bottles, maybe even a full no, bag. <clears throat> yeah, but probably everything's uh, circa you know, 1985. Might be a golf cart out there once in a while. Could be. Okay, next one up is uh, helium. And uh, I, I every about it seems like every two years this one comes up and I you know you, you get a lot of press for it and then it kind of goes away. But if you're into tech diving using helium, this is something you do not want to hear. And that is that helium prices are going to increase. This is actually an article talking about it as a commodity that uh, you expect the commodity prices. In the last two years, the price of helium has over doubled. I like that one part where the guy, uh, one of those gentlemen who do the uh, Bidding on commodities has identified that it could possibly go up to 50 times the current price. Well, and, and kind of the avenue I got from the articles that they were encouraging it. They said that it's too cheap and people don't uh, value it. You know, they're, they're because what they're saying is that the helium we have now is the helium that we have. You know, it's not something that naturally occurs. So they're saying that you know you you, you can't get more of it. But what what is interesting is that the helium is actually a byproduct of natural gas. Right. So, and I know we have a huge amount of natural gas. So it seems like the reason why helium is becoming scarce is because it it's not hasn't been economical to build <clears throat> the processing plants to extract and store the helium. Right, because it was too cheap. But right. if they're talking that a, a helium balloon should cost you $100 to fill, that should give you an idea of how much that's going to suddenly be. Yeah. Well, uh, part of it is helium has always been considered a, a what do they call it a national importance for uh, for the for military and just to have a domestic supply of it. So uh, they were storing the helium in uh, emptied uh, natural gas fields. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's just too cheap for them to at this point to do the processing plant. So as it goes up, it will continue. And then the other thing, if we run out of helium from uh, natural sources. They're saying in the article that a little nuclear fusion creates the byproduct of helium. So we'll just have to build ourselves one. 
I don't think the club can afford to put together a fusion reactor for uh, making <laughs> Trimix, but Bob could. Well, if you could get up the startup costs, I think we could get our money back. Yeah, is that yeah. startup part is a little hard. Yeah, Jim was saying that Bob could put one together for us, and I don't doubt that for a second. And then this next article is the one that makes me wince. Yeah. And at first I thought it was a joke. I'm still not convinced it's not a joke, but I don't want to find out, at least the hard way. Uh, the In this photo, these teeth, I mean, I mean this is, look like a pair of old dentures. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that looks pretty serious bite there. It is the Paco fish, also known as the ball cutter in Papua New Guinea, where locals reported two deaths due to the impossibly scary fish testicle bite. It is improbable as it sounds a fish goes down on the balls of fishermen and swimmers when they're in the water, and it's believed the fish think it's a delicacy. Yeah. The difference between the Paco fish and piranhas, other than the teeth sharpness, is that the Pacos don't have the underbite that a piranha does, which gives their set of pearly whites much more human-like appearance. Just looking at the thing, the teeth look like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you see that one, the little part that he quoted? Just look at the thing, its teeth, of an enraged Lorena bobbit in fish form. (laughs) Yes. Oh, by the way, they grew up to 60 pounds. (laughs) 60 pounds. Ah. So right now there are cars listening to this swerving off the road as they they think of the possibilities. I yeah. Hmm. Now I, hope, I mean two deaths. I mean that's a lot. Uh, I don't know. I'm I just. I wonder if, if, if wearing your wetsuit though gives you some protection because it doesn't recognize them or something. I would hope well, so. <laughs> well, is that something they target or is it just uh, you know? Well, if you're sitting, if you're swimming on that trail, I could see sort of the the. Uh, the visual the fish might see, but if it's encapsulated in my wetsuit or that shark suit, sounds like what I want to be well, wearing. It sounds there. like in uh, in the part of the article, it seemed like they were talking about, you know, right through their shorts. So, but I'm 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 hoping the you know maybe we need to have a cup for uh, diving that we need to wear. It needs to be part of the gear. Yeah, stainless steel. <laughs> stainless steel. Yeah, we got a comment from the uh, chat room that if we stick to cold water diving, you don't have to worry about it too much. <laughs> the, the the shrinkage will help you? Shrinkage factor will, will factor in, yeah. Is that um, another way of saying some people have more to worry about than others? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that can also apply. It, yeah. So if in the Great Lakes, which I'm begging, please, this is not an invasive species that we want. Yet. Y- yet. <laughs> But if we do, if we do get it, maybe this next, uh, what they talk about in this next article will, will help us. Uh, this is that they are putting an underwater cannon to protect Lake Michigan. Uh, scientists want to know if the underwater cannon is going to be able to protect the Great Lakes fish from greedy predators. And the one they're talking about is the one that we see on wrecks all the time, the round goby, which yes. is an exotic species that hangs around. And also, as much as the zebra mussels help the visibility, those gobies sure stir up the bottom. Uh, and in fact, that's what we'll blame on when we're on Max Wreck and it gets the visibility gets down. It's those darn gobies. That's right. I'm chasing gobies. <laughs> it's not. It's not Jim. It's not his. Uh, no, no. Dangling it's not. parts. It's the gobies. He's spooking up. Leave my dangling parts out of this again. We're gonna have to edit that out. <laughs> the, dang, the dangling parts. Well, that's what the other fish goes after, actually. Yeah. Uh, the researchers. I, I fixed my dangling parts. I now <laughs> have <did>. a retractor. <laughs> <I'm not... laughs> I think 
there's a visual on that, huh? A retractor. We need somebody who can do some drawings for us. Uh, the, biolis, the, bio, the biologist planned to get the seismic gun to chase gobies from several Lake Michigan reefs that are popular spawning areas. Uh, the equipment is set, the experiment is to begin next fall. How long does it take to get a gun and put it on a reef? Why well, doesn't fall seem a little late for that? Won't they be spawning also, in the spring? I was also curious to see what kind of what what are they after? Is it the uh, the audible part of the gun part, or is it a pressure wave? What I don't know what they're going to get from that. It, it didn't really say. Yeah. What what it says is researchers are hoping the gobies that are shell-shocked from the cannon will stay away long enough for native fish eggs to hatch and escape. But wh- why is that? I mean, do, do they have to wait for the native species to lay the eggs, and then the moment they lay the eggs, the cannon goes off? Uh, it's going to have to be one of, those, one of those bird chaser cannons that drips a chemical in and all of a sudden goes boom every two minutes. Yeah. Boy, and that's going to be annoying as hell. <laughs> Well, then imagine underwater. What's it going to sound like? Yeah, good question. Why would the gobies be affected but not the native fish? The native right. fish or the divers? We're going to be hearing that kaboom going well, on. Well, there's another way they could do it, and they do it at Cook Plant. That's they have an underwater audible system that keeps the uh, fish away from their intake tunnels to minimize the entrapment. And it has got a certain frequency that alewives do not appreciate. Therefore, they it makes them stay away from the intake tunnels. Oh, so they but they can so they can target it at specific species of fish. Right, they they've got it's a series of approximately I got to remember because I wrote the thing on it. Uh, Twelve underwater transducers that put out a certain frequency at a certain rate, and it does actually make a nice sound barrier from the aspect that it inhibits it deters the alewives, for example, from vast quantities grouping around the intakes. Hmm. Well. Like they're saying in the chat room, somebody got a, a bucket of money to go ahead and, and do that. So if they can do it without, you know, and, and get the results, then, you know, let's give it a shot. But uh, this next one is out of the, from the Vancouver Sun, as soon as the article comes up. And this is in regards to Bali's successful coral restoration project is being replicated worldwide. Uh, this is a... Uh, Cyanide fishing and warmer water temperatures have uh, impacted the coral in Bali. A German scientist pioneering work on organic architecture design project that is now being replicated and being used in 20 countries. Uh, it is being in the uh, Permatuan. I, I can't even pronounce that again, uh, where the project was launched in 2000. Metal frame known as the crab is covered with huge corals uh, where they hope fish will make their home. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, he says the 60-year-old uh, German-born Austrian, Australian first dived in the bay back in 1992 to see the beautiful reefs. But by the end of the 90s, uh, the reefs were pretty much gone. As devastated, basically the corals were dead. It was gravel and sand. Uh, uh, he, so with his structure, coral can grow six times faster and were able to grow back reefs in a few years. The interesting part about that is how they hook it to a power supply to give it a small current, mm-hmm. and that build, makes a buildup of the limestone, which helps that spontaneous building aspect. That's why it, it can do so much in short a period of time. Oh, we, we actually covered this a little over a year ago. We had an article on this one. Uh, I didn't get it that it was the same project. They really don't give the references like the 
the one we covered it before. But yeah, that was like a metal grid structure. This one they're trying to make it look more like design or architecture. But well, what they're doing. If, if that fills in, you're going to have a lot more spaces for the animals to go through and hide mm-hmm. and populate, you know? Yeah, because what they were pitching it before was to uh, hotels that were along where reefs should be. And they're uh-huh. using it because what they were doing is uh, they're trying to get them instead of, you know, throwing sand and the sand gets washed out. They were trying to get to, to build up the reefs. And then part of it was uh, they were also another element to that, which are not covering in this article was how to get the power out there. They're trying to get it out to deeper and deeper reefs or or at least farther from shore. So they're working on structures that would actually solar cells and things that would be able to power it to get the, uh, the coral to grow. I just looking at that article, I don't, I I do not understand why somebody didn't think that cyanide fishing was not a good thing to do. I remember when I was doing aquariums in the early eighties, that was, uh, and it didn't last, I don't know how long it lasted, but it, it, to me, it didn't seem like it lasted that long because the, uh, everybody kind of got wise to what was going on because it, it was some of the locals who were basically living in poverty and they were just trying to catch as many fish as quick as they could. And the cyanide would like stun the fish, but you know, it also kills them too. So you know, it it didn't take long for them to essentially drive themselves out of business. So that stopped, to my knowledge. I don't know. Maybe somebody who's who's really current on aquariums can fill us in. But I think they that that practice pretty much got abandoned. Well, I was gonna say dynamite fishing would be more humane, maybe, but probably cost more. Yeah. But you're right. I I did look up that little item that talked about spraying sodium cyanide mixture into the habitat, and it stuns the fish. But they didn't anticipate what it did to the coral and coral reefs. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, I don't know, just just the word cyanide brings an image to mind that, you know, it can't Uh, be good. It was talking, it was uh, practically or practiced mainly in saltwater fishing regions of Southeast Asia. And that was in the 1950s. Yeah, in the chat room, they're agreeing. They're saying that uh, that that's one of the fishing they used to do in uh, Philippines. Uh, Paralyzed the fish, kills the coral. I had a note, though, that they were still finding that being used in 1996. Mm. Wow. Well, if you don't care and you're just trying to get a quick buck, you know, I'm really not surprised. So on this next one, you know, they, they always said the one thing they don't make uh, any more of is, is land. But uh, every, every once in a while, it still does happen. An island was born in the Red Sea. An underwater volcanic eruption created a new landmass. Uh, some fishermen witnessed spewing lava fountains reaching 90 feet tall on December 19th near a group of islands known as the Zubar, Zubair group off the west coast of Yemen. NASA has been able to confirm that there is indeed what appears to be a landmass uh, running in a north, roughly northwestern southeastern line. The Zubair Islands poke out of the sea surface, rising, rising from a shield volcano. It is not yet clear how big the landmass is. Uh, let's see, they were, the NASA was using, uh, an earth observing satellite, uh, capturing high resolution display, the images, which were taken on the 23rd and 24th, the 23rd of December. And they're comparing it to October 24, 2007. It shows that the Island where it had previously been unbroken water surface with thick plumes rising from the Island. So, well, I wonder how long you'd have to occupy it before you could claim it as your Island. I don't know. I don't know how, how, how long that is. Huh. And then they also talk about uh, an underwater eruption that created a new Canary Island in November. And I didn't hear about this one either. 
just 70 meters from the surface, the Volcano and Islanders still trying to come up with a new name for the island. This close to El Hirao, and geologists feared that the continued eruption could eventually meet up with the mainland. Ah, did you take a look at the picture of uh, had the not the satellite, but the one that had the geographical areas? It's like how close it is to Yemen, Yemen. Yeah. And the, the straits. That's quite interesting. Yeah, it's, it's right there, all in that that area. There's a new uh, volcano just started um, erupting again today or yesterday, didn't it? I'm trying to remember where that was at. I just remember yeah. seeing that in the news today. Yeah. And uh, just some interesting uh, facts at the end of the article. They said that uh, 75% of all the lava that erupts each year comes from undersea volcanoes. There are more than 5,000 known submarine volcanoes. Uh, they say that how geologists find them is listening for boiling water using hydrophones, but extreme depths, the water pressure is too high for it to boil. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep, a little bit more land. I, I agree with you. Maybe we need to get a little Zodiac boat out there and we'll claim it. <laughs> we got Max Wreck. How about Max Island? I like the sound of that. I don't know. With us, it might be more like Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island. Well, with the people that associate with me, that's probably true. We've got to work on getting some new gingers, though. Or even Marianne wasn't too bad. <laughs> Okay, Portsmouth out of the UK. This one is, uh, as we're talking about new landmass, they're talking about uh, the Royal Navy, their flagship, uh, the Ark Royal, HMS Ark Royal. Uh, They're talking about uh, turning it into an artificial reef. The Ministry of Defense has said that there's no decision been made about the fate of the Ark Royal, which was controversial controversially decommissioned three years early as part of a government 2010 defense cut. Uh, One of the uh, previous commanders of the vessel said that he would prefer to see it sunk as an artificial reef than sent to the breaker's yard. Absolutely. And I happen to agree. But what I thought is at the very end of the article, I think sinking the old flagship in UK waters could be seen as somewhat symbolic of the cuts the government has made to the Royal Navy. I don't think that's a good reason not to sink it. Well, it doesn't look like they get that much for it, and they might get more if they sank it in a place that they can actually have people dive in it for money. Yeah. The Turkish-based film firm, it was the Royal Ark was up to sale on the Ministry of Defense auction website last year. It came just a few months after the Invincible was sold to the Turkish-based scrap firm for two million pounds. Uh they said the Royal Ark has attracted interest from potential floating tourist attraction in Gibraltar, a heliport in London, a nightclub and school in China. Now, is it a nightclub and a school in China at the same time? A school for one. We're not going to get into that part, though, right? <laughs> yeah. What are, they, what are they doing the school in? Or as a casino in Hong Kong. Uh, but uh, as of late, uh, charity wreck wreck the world uh, could see the 2010 meter ship turn an artificial reef off the south coast of Devon. Uh, the bid received 6.5 million pound backing from the scrap metal firm uh, GH Newsberry and Son and defense engineering firm AMP Falmouth. Falmouth. That actually seems to be a good amount of money, doesn't it? I mean, if the last one, the sister ship only got 2 million pounds, seems like 6.5 would be a pretty good deal. Well, she's get a bit bigger. Now, they're saying that they could sink it as a, in just a few months. Uh, 
Well, it sounds a little I aggressive, think, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think before they they can cut her up, they all already have had to remove the asbestos and stuff. I would think if you were going to scrap it, you would leave that stuff in there. I mean, I know like in the U.S. ships, they take off anything that might be considered sensitive. Yeah. So they cut, you know, anything proprietary or important. But uh, yeah, hopefully, I I I, th- I would love to see another shipwreck. I was looking at an article that talked about the HMS Ark Royal put up for sale on military eBay. I got a shot at it. They said we got a shot at it? Well, no, I'm just saying it said on military eBay. I didn't know there was one. I was looking at another picture of it. Huh. There are also three Type 42 destroyers, if you're interested in those, also on the uh, on the list. I'm, I'm interested. I just don't think we could fit them through the locks. True. I was looking. They actually had a nice Russian submarine that was for sale for $500,000. And that, that's um, a late 70s model. Oh, but I thought it was that like, one that was that was burning this last week. No, that's a different one. That's a nuke boat. <laughs> How would you like to be the guys they left on to secure it? Well, I hear it was in dry dock, but I don't know what that means there. Well, it, it was uh, literally up on blocks in dry dock and uh, had a, uh, a structure around it. And I think what happened is that the, the, the it's a rubber-coated hull they're using, and yep. the rubber caught on fire. So they actually flooded the dry dock to try and get it out, but it didn't put it out. I guess it just kept burning. So, uh, you know, it's kept probably like an old tire. You know, once you get it going, it had to burn its way out. So Yeah. And next up is Civil War era wreck off Egmont Key to become a preserve. A Civil War ship participated in one of the nation's most famous battles before sinking in the mouth of Tampa Bay become Florida's 12th underwater archaeological preserve. The wreck of the USS Narcosis tugboat off Edmund Key, just north of Island, provides not only fascinating underwater preserve to explore, but also unique adventurous into our nation's history. And this is according to Florida Secretary of State Kurt Browning. Only 15 feet deep out there. Merged in recent years about 15 feet below the surface, according to state reports. So it just means that the, the sand must have moved, and now you can see it. Yeah, it said once almost buried in the sand. Uh, normally would be considered junk. Yeah. So another. Down at the bottom, they said in 2006, the archaeological expedition reported all the steam machinery, propeller, propeller shaft, pillow blocks, boilers, or boiler pieces, and portion of the hull were exposed. Sounds like a rubble wreck. Yeah, it 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 does sound like a rubble wreck. Just a bunch of parts that are there there in the bottom. <laughs> Uh, they were saying they were shying away from taking customers to the site without an archaeologist or trained maritime scholar. But they would have one for each boat they took out? Well, they were saying they were not taking people out because they don't have these uh, people to uh, make sure you don't do any damage to something that's on the bottom of the freaking ocean for 100 years. Yeah. If we took people there on a regular basis without any sort of restriction, there would be a very good possibility that with dropping anchors or people trying to recover artifacts – really take away from the wreck itself, which we knew nothing about. I added that we knew nothing about, but yeah, I, I get your point. Uh, you know, that's, I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, we probably don't need to get in that discussion tonight. <laughs> we, we can do a full episode just on that. Yeah, we need beer and around the bar tables and the, the round group tables if we're going to talk, talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll cover that one after, on the after show. You got uh, beer? I've got a little bit of excitement there. Okay. So where were we? We were were on the last topic, just about getting ready to talk about New Jersey, or not New Jersey, but the uh, railroad tracks in Florida. Ah, railroad tracks in Florida. 
Which one? Did I? I'm not seeing that in my notes. But I know the one. So uh, we'll we'll go ahead and go from there. Where the that's where they had the the old railroad tracks. They're celebrating the hundredth anniversary and they're inviting divers to go and dive on yeah. the railroad tracks that have that they pushed in. And I, I didn't realize it was recent that they pushed those tracks in. Just kind of pushed them off the side. Was it 1982? Uh, well, it says 1912 is when they connected the Keys and mainland Florida. Yep. So that's where they're celebrating their hundredth anniversary. But as far as when they were doing the construction on a new highway, I think it was 1982 when they when they pushed those in. And it's about they said it's a it's a challenging dive. The currents are quite strong, and it's fairly deep at over 100 feet. Yeah, they said what the Marathon Reef site was created in July 1982, soon after the new Seven Mile Bridge opened. So, uh, so I, I guess uh, it's been popular with divers, but it, it's probably just a bunch of uh, twisted metal. But what I what I kind of realized is that they this is a turn bridge. Yeah, so, so, so that'd be so that'd be similar to the one that we've got in uh, St. Joe. Just so, just kind of imagining that being on the bottom. Well, that makes sense because now they're just talking the area that you can explore is concrete and steel rubble spread over 1.6 acres, rising off a flat sandy bottom as much as 30 feet. So in the middle of sand, you've got this hump of stuff to look at. Yeah, so similar to some of our crane wrecks that we've got in in the Great Lakes. Yeah. So if you happen to be down there, they're inviting people to go diving, 100th year anniversary. Uh, in the cool gear section of the uh, podcast, uh, this first item, it was just I was thinking of all the interesting ideas for shipwreck hunting that we could do with this. This is the GoPro uh, camera, which has become quite popular. Um, you see those all over on surfboards, skateboards, and divers. And this is an attachment for it where they put the GoPro camera and uh, troll it in front of a fishing lure. So you've kind of got a lure cam. Well, this is neat because compared to the, the fishing ones we use where, you know, you don't have the optics for it, uh-huh. this looks pretty decent. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a full, I mean, it's the, the underwater camera. So this one's not quite as good as what Bob has, but they've kind of put in a housing that allows it to troll behind the boat fairly well. And the video looked very good. Yeah, because they must have some visibility and a little bit of light. Does it yeah. give a price for what that is? Well, the the camera, you're going to have a few hundred dollars, but I don't know how much they've got the... Uh... Well, I know you can buy the GoPro for 300 bucks. Yeah. I'm looking at the uh, the fish. Yep. And... Go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say the GoPro is 300 with the underwater case. Uh, so this is like a bell for around the GoPro, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine it being, you know, famous last words. It can't be that expensive. But, uh, you know, figure, you know, on the high side, what, $100 be high? But this looks like one of those things you could make yourself pretty easy, couldn't you, Mac? Then it just kind of looked like a, a PVC reducing coupler. Yeah, but I was, it looked like they had a line I couldn't say. Is that like real time or is that recorded time? Real time. The, meaning, are you being able to see a video active or is that something different? No, it's just like when you're when you're using the camera underwater. Where what you're going to do is you're going to bring that back up. That's what I'm saying. It's not live. It's not live. Now, I imagine, you know, with a little bit of engineering, you could uh, hook up some sort of cable for a camera. GoPro is coming out with a uh, Bluetooth connection that will go on the back and will let you do streaming live. Mm -hmm. How that will work through the water, I'm not sure, but 
Yeah, Blue, Bluetooth, even in air, only has a range of Bluetooth rated for, it's supposed to be three to nine feet, I believe, or a meter to three meters is what the spec originally was. It might be longer distance now, but that's all it was in the air. Uh, so yeah, it, it wouldn't make it all the way up in the boat, but you could, you know, you could come up, we could rig some sort of extension to make that farther. But that, yeah, I think that's, uh, it's interesting. I like, I, I like the idea of it. You know, oh, yeah, it's, it's here. It says a stable platform trolls up to 11 knots, no turbulence, interfere with your videos. Now think about this, Mac, if you had this kind of being towed behind the towfish and you had great visibility. Well, again, it would be after the fact. Right. But you could mark, you know, if you had some sort of time sink, you could mark when you saw something or you go over a, a known area. Oh, and, yeah, you could. Yep. Or better yet, I mean, the visibility on that looks pretty decent, so you could always use it for drop camera. Yeah, yeah, you could always use it for drop camera. But then you wouldn't even need the housing. I think the value of the housing is the fact that it, it trails in the behind the water. Yeah, yeah. And then this next video, this one has been going around the Internet quite a bit the last few a uh, few days. It just gets me in the mood for some ice diving, but this is uh, some uh, Finn divers who were in Finn as in Finnish, not as in scuba fins uh, underwater, and they just did an excellent job. I love the video. It's kind of one of those things, it's like, why didn't I think of that? Now, you're looking at the YouTube one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because the, the video starts out where they have... Uh, you know, one guy walking underwater. With music. <laughs> yeah, so they, I, I especially love the uh, wheelbarrow. That is pretty cool. Yeah, so that had been a pretty light wheelbarrow they had there. But they definitely don't have a mucky bottom, do they? Well, it, did it hit the bottom or are they just in deep enough water where we didn't see it? <laughs> well, I mean, the wheelbarrow's in the water. It's got to be sitting on the bottom. I mean, it didn't kick up the plumes or anything, even when he's walking. That was awesome video, though. Yep. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And then I liked the part where they were playing with the guy on the surface. Yeah. I liked your blog post, too. Whose blog post? Oh, the one on uh, precision diving. This is a... Yes. That was was an excellent one on burning in a light. Yes, it is. Is that available to the others? Because if not, they'd like to see that one probably, or at least have it available to look at offline. Yeah, I'm going to... I didn't get back into the chat room, so here I'm going to go paste it into the chat room here so everybody else can uh, follow along. Come on, chat room. They're probably waiting in breathless anticipation for the uh, scuba jump. Oh, yeah. You know, that's always the favorite part of the show. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Tony. (laughs) So there's the the link to that that blog post. But, yeah, that was uh, a friend of the show who actually had been on once. The Precision Diver blog with uh, Dwayne Johnson right there in the Chicago area. An independent instructor if you're looking for anybody specializing in, in tech diving. But this blog, he always has some excellent posts. Uh, kind of him and Andy keep trading the rain back and forth as to who, who's got the better blog posts. Okay, so that does it for Scuba in the News. <laughs> After Through all the technical problems, we've, we've been able to get through that. And then we actually had some diving going on this last week. Uh, we celebrated New Year's Eve, and that was the club's, uh, how many years has this been, Mac? Um, so I've done it for 33 years in a row. So 33 uh, years in a row, at least, I, the, the club has done a New Year's Eve dive. Right. I think I've got pictures from 1978, so I know from 78 up until now, and I have missed one since then. Actually, I haven't missed any of them. 
So uh, where was it this year? Was that Singer Lake? Singer Lake. Uh, we were very fortunate in having 38-degree uh, water. At the same time, we had 38-degree air temperature with oh, nice. very little wind. Excellent. And I think what people liked is uh, Bob even enjoyed it. One of his best ice dives or night dives in that he had 20 foot visibility. And that was Bob talking now, not me. Well, and, you know, and that's Bob in Singer Lake, which Bob and Kurt, they can't stand it when we go to Singer Lake. So that was excellent that we had that type of visibility. Now, of course, he had the baby son that he takes with him. Oh, the, 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 the laser light. The laser light. It that burns through, vaporizes everything it touches. But everybody but I, down there had actually, I mean, everybody said they saw fish, crayfish, and it's like I saw small ones, they saw big ones. They had bigger lights. <laughs> well, size is subjective, but yeah, so uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, so you look like you had six divers? Yep. Uh, we had our normal guys. Uh, we also posted it with some pictures, before and afters, on the uh, club website. Yep. So, so if you go to might go there, you can see the guilty party. Mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. We had some some people diving. Now we had our standard, which is uh, Ken Reamer, Larry Stillman, Jim Schultz. Uh, let's see, we had uh, Mary Beth, uh, which is the only female we had this year diving with us. And who am I missing, Jeff? You, me, Larry, Bob, Mary Ken, Beth, Ken, Ken. myself. Yeah, that's six of us. And then we had three surface tenders because uh, Kirk came along. And then we had Lucy and uh, Jerry. And we did have some visitors. Visitors? Were they uh, people from the lake? Yeah, coming down to see what the heck the problem was with all these divers and lights and noise and generators. Yeah, so they they didn't call the police again, did they? No, they looked around and said, oh, that's just McElhaney. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Sweeney knew him also. I was from the cook plant. Oh, okay. Well, that's good, because isn't this the spot where we had the police called on us once before? Yeah, a couple of years ago, being rowdy. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they, uh, somebody thought we were having too much fun in the middle of the lake. <laughs> on the ice and the cold. Yeah, I think we had a noisy generator that year. Couldn't tell. We were making more noise than the generator. <laughs> Imagine that. But the, the fish is amazing, because I've been in Singer Lake, and there's been a couple times I'll see, like you said, a crayfish or an occasional fish, but it sounds like everything was coming out for you guys on New Year's Eve. It was great. I mean, I dove with Mary Beth the week before to get her used to the area. And then I finished diving with Rob, and he'd actually found a very large catfish inside one of those uh, hollowed-out logs on the bottom. So even last week, we had pretty good viz. He estimated it five to six feet. I would have said ten. But he had another. He had a nice light also. Yeah. So excellent, excellent, excellent. Nice, nice to have a good dive in there. Right. Just ready for other people to go out. Yeah. I'm ready when they are. So that and that is Singer Lake. So uh, yes. Now we did have a little bit of rain or, again earlier this week. Now I missed uh, New Year's Eve. You know, I I was getting the vibe that it really wasn't okay for me to go diving. So uh, and and actually Jim Kleeman and family came over and we had a family night of it. Uh, we were planning on going out the next day. We had actually had plans to go out to the pier on New Year's Day and do some diving, but it woke up and there was. Almost no wind. Then they got a little wind. It was an hour we had gales, so I just imagine everything was crashing out over the pier. Yep, I saw the post and I said, that's correct. And it's the river was too high, too mucky, and I knew we were pretty much wanting to do the pier. So. Yeah, well, we had planned on the pier, and then we thought, you know, if things weren't great, we'd do the basin. But with the way the wind was going, I think any anything other than – we almost talked about going to Lake 16, but that was such a haul – and then we were starting to get a storm. We were supposed to have a really bad s- snowstorm. We did get, I think, by 
Tuesday, didn't we have about 10 to 12 inches? Uh, some people did. We fortunately got missed. We oh. only had a, um, an inch or so. Covered oh. up the grass anyway. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think we had at least 6 to 10 in where I'm at. Now, maybe some of that could have been drifting, but oh, well. So uh, so that, that did it for last week's dives. Now, we did get a little rain this week. So is there any talk of, of diving this weekend? Um, I'm available if somebody else is ready to go. I did get the trailer done. I actually got my tags for it, so I can haul it Congrats. myself. I need. I, I promised my wife I wouldn't dive into cold water without two people or somebody around anyway. Congrats. Congratulations. Yeah, the, the, nice yeah, job I, in the, the trailer. Now, are you taking yeah. pictures all the way so you can do a post? Actually, I do, but uh, <laughs> maybe for the club members who are interested. A labor of love. So he's got a nice little trailer for hauling the ice shanty and some gear. Um, and then also Saturday is the underwater preserve, uh, meeting for the Southwest Michigan. And also at the same time on the other side of the state is the Michigan preserve meeting. I will yep. be going uh, up to Holland for the underwater preserve meeting. Okay. Uh, there's also fear, uh, fear, the free beer night down there at, on Friday down at Sass's. They're having a shark arama. So uh, if you're in the west part of Michigan, was that Friday night they're doing the beer night? Yes, I believe it was Friday night. Yeah, so that's Sass Diving. You look up Sass Diving on Google, that will get you to their website. Yeah, and then, like, the chat room's going live with free beer. That's what you got. That's what we got to do to get everybody really excited. <laughs> uh, I think their last big event like that was a pub crawl, which was unusual for a dive group. But it was too cold to go diving. They said, let's make a pub crawl, and they did. Is it possible to be too cold to go diving? For some people who said they can't do it because they don't have wetsuits, I'm, I'm not sure who those people are, though. Wetsuits? I thought wetsuits were for ice diving. I think somebody's lying to us. Works for me. So, uh, yeah, so we, we got that to look forward to as well. Hopefully we get some ice. I want to get at least one ice dive in, but I wouldn't mind it being one or two ice dives, and then we're back to spring. <laughs> It almost feels like spring. I mean, today when I was driving around, it just had that spring feel, 40-some degrees. Well, the next project, of course, is getting the fish completed. We're probably 95%. Larry's redoing the rail. When the rail gets done, then I'll finish the fish. Mm -hmm. So that'll be nice that I can kick into looking for enhancement to our electronics that we have. Excellent. And look at Dr. Depth. Because yeah. it'll be it'll be time to get out there in the water, guys, in another month or so. It won't take long at all. No. Nope. Well, we do have some reviews that we'll like to go ahead and cover. We had one on TalkShoe. Yeah, you not only do we love the five-star reviews on TalkShoe, you can also do five-star on TalkShoe on iTunes, but you can also do five-star reviews on TalkShoe. We have one that says, I had no idea, and this is from uh, John P., who happens to, to be in our chat room, Actually, right now, so we'll embarrass him. And it says, uh, Darren is able to find new diving news every week. I had no idea as a novice of diving there was so much out there. Thanks for bringing in such fun and informational podcasts. Great insight from all the co-hosts. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, John. We appreciate those. Uh, it And hopefully people, when they see those, they want to come and listen to the podcast. But if not, oh well. And then we also had uh, some comments on Facebook one of them was from somebody who writes for Dan, the uh, Divers Alert magazine. He he is a listener to the program, he's, and uh, he actually sent me an email with a little bit longer discussion. It says, so there I was, driving to work, listening to back episodes of Scuba Obsessed, when in episode 78, Mac brought up the summer issue of Dan's 
Divers Alert magazine. He mentioned a couple articles and had several nice things to say about Where Stave article, which is about diving going wrong, where a diver was missing, but later found okay. I wrote that article and dove that dive. Many thanks for your and Max positive comments. Very heartwarming to actually hear that my experience and efforts were making a difference to diver safety. Look forward to listening to future episodes on the way home. And that's Oren Noah. And thank you for the comment. We like to get feedback like that. It's it's good to see that such respected divers are listening to the program. So we're glad that you're entertained. And Dan, I just have to say I'm a big fan of Dan and what they do and all the research and help that they do for divers. And I think if somebody's not a Dan member, they're crazy. you got to get out there and belong to Dan. That's an excellent organization. And the Alert Diver, love that magazine. Uh, and, and then he did have beat their insurance. Pardon me? I said, and you cannot beat their insurance. No, you cannot. That That is an excellent deal, especially if you're, if you're diving. I mean, the only time you wouldn't need is if you're not going to do any diving. So if you're scuba obsessed, you're going to get the insurance and you're going to go diving because uh, that's what you do. And, and uh, I mean, of course, we're not insurance agents and can't give you all the details on it. But I know that some of the things it covers is uh, uh, extractions, I believe, you know, hyperbaric chamber visits. Uh also, it helps fund uh, a lot of the, the their 800 number. You know, talking of Dan again, I'm not so much into the travel and a lot of the little fishies because we don't have them here. But like the um, December article on cold comfort training and equipment for ice diving, mm-hmm. anybody who's going to do any cold water diving, you really want to read that article in Dan because it's excellent. Was that in Dan or was that in uh, diver training? Well, divers training, uh, they had to find um, duh, yes, not Dan, but divers training. So if you haven't got that magazine, most of your local dive shops have that. You really want to start looking and picking up a copy of the, the training. Uh, I like it because it's written on the level of the novice most often, and uh, there's lots of pearls of wisdom in there. That is an excellent, another excellent magazine. And then uh, there was a P.S. from Owen's uh, email. So after all his great comments, he said, P.S., a few episodes prior, uh, prior, I listened closely to your guest named Eric from the Big Island as the clues amassed to marine robotics, one hour north of Kona, transport from Seattle. I realized that he was one of those mainland divers who had dove with him on the Pico. That was Eric. We met on Dive Matrix, and we dove together when I was on vacation there, he's an awesome diver and a wonderful host. Small world, huh? And it is. Isn't that one of the great things that we've always talked about diving is just the people you get to meet. Uh, it's like, if, you know, you're, it seems like everybody who's a diver is your friend. It is. It's a bond. I mean, you have a commonality there. Yep. You're either going to loan them gear or steal their gear. Yep. And there are a lot of characters out there. All lovable. Well, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> So uh, some you love to see coming, and some you love to see going. <laughs> yes, uh, hopefully I don't resemble that comment, but uh, yeah, I, I I know where you're coming from. So uh, you know, to remind everybody, you can always we love to have those likes and and grab a friend. You know, let if you have some friends who are diving and uh, they're not listening to podcasts, let them know about the podcast. We always like to to grow the uh, listeners. Uh, tell them about Thursday nights. Convince them to come on uh, to listen, you know, chat live. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. Uh, we also have the website, www.scubaobsessed.com. 
You can subscribe on iTunes, uh, most of the other media services. And if you see a podcast listing service that doesn't have them on, let us know. Uh, we love feedback with the show at scubaobsessed.com, and that, that feeds in directly to us. And we see each of those emails. And, and let us know if you have somebody you want us to interview. We're going to be going to try and get a few more interviews set up this year so we have some people on the show. Uh, we have some uh, interviews pending uh, from last year that we still need to get done as well. So hopefully we get those all done. And then, as always, like we said before, we love those five-star reviews on iTunes. that helps us get more listeners. And then also, if you like to advertise, here's the time to pitch to pay some bills. If you like to advertise, want to do some shout-outs, let us know. Um, if you got a dive business and you want some sort of mentions, um, we can get you on the, on the program. Uh, love to hear from you. And again, that is the show at scubaobsessed.com. On Twitter, you can follow the Twitter feed for Scuba Obsessed, which is Scuba Obsessed, all one word on Twitter, at Scuba Obsessed. And then I am at Darren Jolson, D-A-R-R-I-N-J-I-L-L-S-O-N. And you can listen to us there. And then we have links to uh, all the show notes. So each week we'll do show notes on the episode. So, And then uh, we do have one five-star review. I don't think we've covered this one. And it says, finally, an active dive podcast. This is by... Jay and Paul, I've been had I've been having trouble finding a podcast that deals with scuba. It's still active, great podcast. Keep it up. Thanks from Florida. So thank you so much on that. So uh, and then uh, we're gonna we have some uh, dive shows coming up. We're getting right into smack dab in the dive season, aren't we? So yes, we are coming up into show season. Show season. So at least for uh, this area. Yeah. So in the Midwest, and I'm sure uh, pretty much all over, uh, at least in North America, everybody's gonna have some shows. Let me see. I got some. I've got a listing of shows and some of the times I was going to get. Uh, oh, I'll probably do a blog post on this, but we've got uh, Our World Underwater, the Great Lake Shipwreck Festival, and the Great Lake Fish Shipwreck Festival is February 25th in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We have Scuba Fest Ohio, which is March 16th through the 18th in Columbus, Ohio. We have Ghost Ships, which uh, do you happen to know when that one is, Mac? Uh, I have that, and I'll be posting it on on our site uh, okay. this week. Uh, I don't have the date right off. Okay. So we, we've got that one, and then we also have Our World Underwater, which is usually a few weeks before Ghost Ship. Now, February 22nd, 25th, that sounds early. I think our, our – uh, let me – let's see how fast I can go and do a Google. Everybody just hum and sing a second. But Our World Underwater is going to be – I'm looking at our calendar also. It'll be there. Oh, it's okay. Our, well, yeah, our, our World Underwater is February 17th through the 19th, and that's at the Donald's E. Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont, Illinois. Right. The Great Lakes uh, Shipwreck Festival is February the 25th at Ann Arbor. Yep. And Go Ships up in Milwaukee, which is a great one to go to if you're a techie diver. And they also release a lot of new wreck information. That's April 13 and 14. So those are probably the three biggest ones we have in this area. Yep. So, uh, and if you haven't if you haven't gotten into diving or listening to the show and just coming across it, those are some some good shows to kind of get an idea of what diving is all about. Also, I'm hoping to get uh, somebody on the show to talk about uh, scuba training because we're getting that time of year. Uh, it might not look like it outside, but it's a good time to get started and and if you're going to want to become certified on scuba diving, get your training and you can do Discover Scubas. You can do uh, you know, the, the basic class, 
Uh, it's also time to start planning, doing some of the book work you can do online to get a head start and then get your certification. And then you'll be all ready for open water just as it starts to get warm. And then you have a whole season of diving. So you go right on in from getting your training to actually going out and doing some diving. A lot of classes have started already. Yeah, I, I saw that uh, at the dive shops I've been I've been bumping into that they've had their uh, January classes are already getting going. And then uh, there's uh, in the chat room they're saying that we've got uh, Scuba Fest in Columbus. I think I had that one. Yeah, that was uh, March 16th through the 18th. Uh, Baltimore and, and D.C. has some scuba shows in February. So uh, and then they're they're trying to talk us in. I, I don't know how, how many of those you think you're going to get hit, Mac. You're going to hit them all or uh, I'm waiting to see the itinerary at the Ford Seahorse one. Um, last time I looked, they didn't have a lot of topics I wanted to. But actually, I was thinking about going to the Ohio one. Uh, they look like they're going to have a wide variety of items, and they're more inland. So I'm sort of partial. So I may be going to Ohio for that one. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to just see. Uh, what, usually I run into this time of the year. Last last year, it was kind of a bad year for me getting the show circuit because uh, my daughter swim meets we're on every one of the shows. So hopefully I'll be able to bypass that this time around. Okay. So, uh, uh, Mac or Jim, you got anything you want to plug? No, I'm just waiting with bated breath for the big joke. Big joke. So I Mac, second that. You, so you second that. So yep. again, thanks for everybody in the chat room, holding on through us through all the connections and, and, uh, reconnections. And maybe this, this actually, this joke, uh, this one might go inappropriate considering we had that fish early on. So just keep that in mind as uh, we go and talk about it. So here we go. For those of you who are nitpicking about the meaning of words, there is a distinction between guts and balls. We've all heard about people having guts or having balls. But do you really know the difference between them? In an effort to keep you informed, here are the definitions. Guts is arriving home late after a night out with the guys being met by your wife with a broom, and having the guts to ask, are you still cleaning or are you flying somewhere? Balls is coming home late after a night out with the guys, smelling a perfume and beer, with lipstick on your collar, slapping your white in the butt, and having the balls to say, you're next, chubby. Hope that clears the confusion in the definitions. Medically speaking, there is no difference in the outcome. Both result in death. Is that from experience? <laughs> no comments. <laughs> I, uh, I can't be from experience because I'm still alive. Well, I'm just thinking like the fish. Could have been there's an after effect, though. <laughs> there could be. Uh-oh. The chat room says they have better ball jokes. So before we get into that, I, I, th- I think we better say, say goodbye for this week. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for Jim and Mac for helping me out. So until next time, everybody go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Oh, goodness. I'm going to mess this part up.